This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Tide Chasers Podcast. Very excited for our guest today. Got some great content coming your way. Got my partner across the way, Kwa. How you doing today, buddy? Good as always, man. Ain't complaining. Perfect, perfect. perfect. Today we're going to welcome a fisheries biologist, a local fisheries biologist from the Philadelphia area. Her name is Kate McStravog at Pepperseed88 on Instagram. Um, before we get into chatting with her, just to give you some info how you can find us. Tide Chasers podcast on Facebook at Tide underscore Chasers on Instagram. Um, we have all the links to all of our podcast shows in, in the bio on the Instagram page, as well as on the Facebook page. But without further ado, welcome, Kate. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks. Thank you guys for having me. <laughs> oh, no, no problem. We're thrilled to have you on the show and we're going to dive right in. So I've fished with you and Mike, uh, you and your boyfriend, Mike, uh, in the past. We've, we've tangled with, well, tried to tangle with some walleye, but uh, <laughs> Where, where did your early influences come from when you got into the fishing world? Like as far as the actual fishing side of things, what, what was it that made you fall in love with fishing? And then we'll talk about how you got into doing that as a uh, occupation a little bit later. Of course. Well, thankfully my, my dad was an avid hunter when I was a kid. I was never allowed to go hunting with him because my mom didn't think it was a very girly thing to do, but he did, he did take us for sunnies and bass. So that's probably my childhood introduction. But it, my, uh, my passion for fishing didn't really take off until I actually studied abroad in the Caribbean. I mm -hmm. did a lot of uh, marine uh, conservation work down there. I worked with a lot of fishermen. I actually got invited uh, to come back and work on a fishing boat. So I did a lot of commercial fishing down there. And my good friend, his name, his name is Spice. <laughs> he, um, he taught me the ropes of fishing and it's just so weird being 21 years old. And my first experience fishing was hand lining and setting pots in the ocean and free diving for lobster and conch. So I, he, it was a pleasure being down there. I just got to go out every day with these fishermen and 
work hard and it was, it was a great time. I think it was, it was probably one of the best experiences I ever had in my life and no rods or reels, but it just kind of threw me into this passion for fish in general and fishing and a lot of respect for these men that go out every day in the hot sun in the Caribbean and they just, they grind. And I, from start to finish, we would, I would fish with them eight to 10 hours a day. And then on the weekends, we would go sell them uh, on another Island and by truck sometimes even. So it's just an overall really cool experience that kind of like started everything with my love for fishing, my love for the islands, my love for marine biology. And um, more recently, I never really fished when I came home though. I only like went, went down there. I never really did freshwater fishing or anything. Every time I fished, it was just in the Caribbean. Um, but when I, uh, came home, I guess it kind of dropped off for a while because I didn't have anybody to go with. I'm a girl. None of my girlfriends went fishing Mm -hmm. until I met Mike. And I think that's really what sparked, um, everything more recently, like all my freshwater fishing started pretty much eight years ago when I met him. And the funniest thing is all we would go for is flatheads and carp <laughs> and to sit on the banks of the Schuylkill river all night long, chunking corn and worms and sunnies. And I think pretty much the whole, I think the night he always tells me this, the night he actually fell in love with me was the night I actually gutted and dissected a flathead catfish to see what it was eating. So he could ter- determine what kind of baits we should be using. <laughs> true love there folks. That's true love. <laughs> that that's how you know she's a keeper you know the fact that she could dissect the fly head and let you know what what he was feeding on so i can go get the same bait and catch one too oh, you can't be shy when you're a fishery scientist or a fisherman like you gotta gut your fish so. uh, now now kate you mentioned hunting we have a previous guest <laughs> that is looking for a female hunting partner her name is nicole we'll have to link you up she's a little further north of us but she hey, <laughs> we, we 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 were trying to put out a classified ads to find her a hunting girlfriend so oh yeah i've never i've never had a, I've, i shot guns my whole life and my dad taught me all about gun safety and everything but it just never took off because my dad always wanted to take me and my mom's like no that i'm drawing the line at, at the <laughs> animals thing she's like she can go fish and whatever but <laughs> Now, now when you, when you were in the Caribbean, obviously you got ruined for every other kind of fishing you would do around here. But when you were in the Caribbean, was that where you decided that, Hey, I want to do this fisheries biology thing. Or was it before that? Um, I always like my entire life growing up, I always wanted to be something with marine biology. Like I wanted to be a dolphin trainer when I was a kid. And then it, it, you know, in, in college, I was like, I'm still really interested in the ocean. I think it's really like, it's like an alien planet. Like it's the unknown. So it, was, it always, I've always been drawn to the ocean. And I, and even, I, um, another thing I, I forgot to mention, I grew up <clears throat> my, all my summers were spent in Sea Isle city on my uncle's boat and he would take us fishing too. So I just, I think that just from those early experiences, it did, I just kind of developed a passion for it. And then once I was in the Caribbean, I got to live that life. I did not want to, I, cr- I cried every time I came home. <laughs> I did not want to leave. Like it was just, like living in paradise i had um minimal tv it was like a giant camping trip i had no electricity for three weeks i had um no running water i used to have to bathe out of a bucket not many girls can handle that (laughs) but just waking up every morning to this beautiful landscape and being out on the water and you're seeing all kinds of cool fish dolphins whales seabirds and 
just being around these lovely people in the Caribbean too. Like everyone I knew down there was just so friendly and so happy, even though a lot of them didn't have much. Gotcha. Now, where did you get your, your fisheries biology degree? Where, where did you study, uh, study at? So my track was a little curvy. <laughs> I originally went to school um, for, I, I got my bachelor's in biology from Villanova University. Um, wasn't really sure what, where I wanted to go. So I just uh, applied to a bunch of different schools. I was a little nervous to move really far away from home right off the bat. But Villanova gave me a grant. So, and it's a very prestigious school. So my parents are like, you'd be an idiot if you didn't go there. You need to go to Villanova. <laughs> I had a really good education there. Um, um, but the biggest thing is I got my bachelor's there, but they sent me abroad to Turks and Caicos and that's where that experience <laughs> happened. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. They're like, Oh, we don't have marine biology here, but do you want to go to the islands? And I was like, uh, yes, please. <laughs> That'd be great. So I would say that based off of this conversation, you would recommend the, the program that they have in place there. Oh yes, it was awesome. Um, that was that program was called. They're still around. It's the School for Field Studies. Mm-hmm. I was actually torn between going to Costa Rica or Turks and Caicos, but I was a little wary because I knew somebody who went to Costa Rica, and he's like, "Oh, you're gonna have to buy snake boots. There's so many venomous snakes there." And I was like, "Ooh." <laughs> Turks and Caicos, it is. Yep. Exactly. And they said in Costa Rica that I'd be in a classroom a lot. And they're like, in Turks and Caicos, you're going to be working on a boat every single day. And I'm like, that sounds way more fun. <laughs> we'll do that one. For sure. Now, how long have you been studying varying fisheries and what has been your biggest accomplishment in the field so far? Um, this will be my fifth year uh, doing fisheries work. I started out as a fisheries technician and now I'm technically a fisheries biologist. It's hard to say what like my biggest accomplishment would be because I am a scientist. I'm not published, but I would say that, well, let me think. <laughs> we can pause here, right? <laughs> I wrote some notes down. Let me see. So I guess my biggest accomplishment would just be to have the honor of learning so much information. I've spent a lot of time um just all these, uh, I've done so many different projects. I have this whole plethora of knowledge, just being able to experience and see all these different water bodies throughout the tri-state area and being able to travel for work too. And I got to experience Texas for the first time in my life the past two years. I think just the biggest accomplishment in fisheries that has brought me to so many uh, wonderful people, like very well-educated people and a variety of people that have taught me so much when it's come to both science and fishing, because they kind of go hand in hand when you do fishery science. Like I feel like a lot of my counterparts have a passion for fishing too. Like, I think that that sparks what, why people go into that field of science as well. What would you uh, say your, your scientific knowledge of the fish helps you at target different species of fish differently than you would had you not had that knowledge? hard to say when you're used to it. <laughs> um, for the most part, when uh, I, I've just done a lot, all of our studies, typically you're looking into habitat, you're looking into fish health, you're looking into the ecosystem as a whole. You're not really studying, unless you're doing a specific study on feeding patterns. I've never really gotten to study their feeding habits or their aggression. It's more just be like to track fish. Like we, um, when I worked for the state of Delaware, we used to tag and track spawning striped bass or tag and track 
uh, sturgeon to try to understand where they go, how they move around, um, and just like the seasonality of everything with them. Uh, the biggest advantage I would say would be uh, spots. <laughs> Maybe not so much the uh, a lot of the places that I've worked at for both for, mostly for the state, honestly, would be recreational areas. They want people to fish. They want people to catch good fish, and they want they want trophy fisheries. Like the biggest example is um, I did a little bit of work with the Lake Trout and Round Valley Reservoir. And I know the trophy fishing has kind of dropped off a little bit. My, my boss is amazing. Like, he's just like, we need to get, make sure these fish are healthy. We need to figure everything out. We can, they want people to catch fish and they want, they want to make these good fisheries. Like, you know, you want your kids to catch them. You want people to have these activities. Um, let me try to think. Well, I lost my train of thought. (laughs) Too much of my it happens. It happens. <laughs> I do it often, and I I do this every week. So. Oh yeah, another scientist were scatterbrains. So. <laughs> now uh, you, you uh, myself, and Mike have uh, talked briefly uh, when we've been out walleye fishing about some of the crazy things you guys you you see out there in the field, like fish that should not be in certain areas or in certain areas. Like, what would you name name a couple things that you think uh, you've seen that just just blows your mind? I I guess is the best way to put it. Pull up my list. I went through my photos today. <laughs> so it's just, I think it's just really neat when, um, let me see. Okay. So let me just start with this. <laughs> so for my latest project working on the Delaware river in a more industrial setting, we did 12 hour shifts. You are either tw- the 12 hour day shift or the 12 hour night shift. And it's crazy to see that there's a huge difference between day shift and night shift. When you're day shift, you know, you're relaxing, you know, you can have an early day on Friday. Like there's not going to be that many fish night shifts, a totally different story. Um, and we typically get these oddities. We'll get some during the day, but it usually happens at night. I think the craziest thing, like growing up around here and fishing the Delaware river watershed is I never thought I would see so many saltwater fish we would get, um, a, ha- a handful it wouldn't be like all the time, but we would see things like juvenile sheep's head, juvenile Jack Craval all the way up the river, as well as, um, adult and juvenile summer flounder. The weirdest thing I got, I actually had to look it up because I didn't even know what it was. It was a drum, but it wasn't a black drum. I've seen plenty of juvenile black drum, um, and almost larval black drum too. It was a banded drum. I didn't even know they existed around here. And you get, and it's cool to see these creatures in science because these are things you can't catch rod and reel. And you, and the other thing we got recently towards the end of my project that I always wanted to see and I never got a chance to was a force fine stickleback. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, have to go, I'm gonna have to Google that. Hey, <laughs> Google, uh, Siri, can you uh, tell me what? <laughs> force fine stickleback. They're a weird looking fish. It almost looks like, like a bass and a seahorse had a mini baby. I don't even know. Like they're just, they're just, it's so cool to see these tiny little fish and they don't get much bigger than maybe a couple inches that you would never be able to see out fishing. Like, I think that's definitely a benefit of my job is seeing all the creatures that live in these water bodies and the salt, the saltwater fish were a surprise enough. And even seeing freshwater fish I've never heard of was, it was really interesting because even working electrofishing, gill netting, you see all the common minnows, 
daces. Um, every now and then you'll get like, uh, even this, uh, we, we catch snakeheads occasionally gill netting <laughs> or uh, hole seining. But I think the salt, the salt water really was what shocked me. Um, I think out of all of them though, uh, the biggest shock was definitely getting a juvenile Atlantic cutlass fish, which it's like a unicorn. I feel like I only see or hear them getting caught or seen out in the ocean. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. Now, a couple of years back, we were seeing like uh, on the Schuylkill, uh, some of these freshwater drum popping up. Have you seen any of those in the area in any of your studies? I've heard about it. I've never, never seen them electrofishing or gill netting. Um, but uh, I guess anything's possible. I was even, I was talking to a guy the other day. Um, we, in like in the Norristown area, and he was telling me this crazy story. He's like, I caught this fish. It was silver and it had fangs. I'm like, it had fangs. And he's like, yeah, it was this big silver fish with fangs. And I'm like, the only thing I know that has fangs is a weak fish, but it wouldn't be shocking for something like a weak fish or a drum. If it could find its way um, into the Delaware river to just, follow the current and go through if those fish ladders are clear to just make their way up. Gotcha. Now we talked about, uh, you've gone to Texas for your job. Now, how often does your job take you to, you know, different areas, like, uh, different States, like South, North, whether, whatever it may be, how often does your job take you out, out to, to different, uh, locations and, and, uh, different fisheries that you're not used to from, from this area? Well, that's a pretty new experience for me. Um, when I worked for the state of uh, Delaware and New Jersey, I, it, it, I got to travel every single day. There's only a handful of fisheries technicians, fisheries biologists. So I got to see like a whole variety of water bodies. I got to see almost like, it felt like almost every single lake, stream, river. Um, and that was cool. Uh, but this job, I'm, I'm a, I work for a consulting firm and we do respond to um, oil spills and fires. So we had a, yeah, it's Texas. There's a lot of, a lot of, uh, in industry down there. Let's say yeah, for sure. Somebody had fire. Um, and even, you know, the firefighting foam they used to put out the fire. There's you know, any, anytime you introduce a chemical to a water body, there's going to be a response. So it was cool that like, it was probably my first month at work and I've never done private work. I've never been in a, like a consulting business at all. They just hired me as their fisheries biologist for the um, industrial work on the river I do. And they're like, oh, pack your bags. You're going to Texas immediately. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, uh, okay. Trained. <laughs> and I was like, well, what do you guys want me to do there? And they're like, just here's your, here's your plane ticket. Just show up and you'll, we'll go from there. So um, it happens suddenly if they, if they win a job, they just, send us, especially for an emergency like that. And it's, it's pretty intense because you have control centers. So I'm dealing with the Coast Guard, Fish and Wildlife, our, our firm, other firms. And it, it feels like a whirlwind. Like you just show up at this control center to trying to get you a badge. And I'm like, I don't even know what I'm doing down here yet. <laughs> and then they, they briefed me and they're like, oh, we need to collect um, fish tissue samples. I was like, I'm all for that. All right. And it's, it's funny when you're the only fisheries biologist in your office and that's why they send you there. And they're like, well, what do you need to collect these fish? And I'm like, I don't know. What do you want me? <laughs> <laughs> like you guys, I don't know what to do. So they're like, what's the best way to efficiently collect fish? I'm like, gill net hook and line. I don't know. So at first, like, this is pretty funny. I can talk about this. Um, 
So I talked to my one boss and I was like, well, I need a gill net. And he's like, all right, well, I'll send you a gill net. And it was a 30 foot gill net. I was like, bro, this isn't going to catch anything. (laughs) This is way too small. So just from meeting so many people, being so new, all these introductions, I got to meet some of the captains of our boats. And the one guy born and raised, his name is Albert. He was, he's now a good friend of mine. He was one of my captains. So I, I was talking to him about collecting fish. And he was a commercial fisherman uh, growing up pretty much. I think like, he's like, oh my God, he's like, you need gill nets. And I'm like, yeah, he's like, oh, he's like, I have like hundreds and hundreds of feet of gill nets. I would love to dust off. So he's like, I, I, I'd love to help you out, collect these fish so we can send them to the lab. I'm like, perfect. So that was a, that was a pretty cool experience. Just getting to meet all these Texans and Louisiana people and going out gill netting every day. And that that did some damage having a 300 foot gill net compared to a 30 foot gill net. <laughs> we were able to get the specimens we needed because they wanted a variety. They wanted, they wanted bait fish. They wanted red drum, black drum, um, sea trout flat, like any like major recreational fish. Cause I think we worked closely with fish and wildlife because it, it would affect consumer advisories. It would affect um, shutdowns for uh, both commercial and recreational fishing. And we were, te- we were testing for, um, and this is a new, I- I'm sure you guys have heard in the news, like PFOS and PFAS. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about those chemicals before? Yes. Oh yeah. yeah. So it's, it's pretty much from firefighting foam. Um, it's, they've even been doing studies in the Delaware river watershed too. And it can be a little scary because with consumer advisories, they never tested for these. It might change a lot of the consumption of the fish in both Texas and our area especially in high industrial uh, places. Now, that was another question I was going to ask you a little down the road, but the work you're doing, does it ultimately have an effect on how regulations are come about? Like, do you have any kind of, maybe not direct say, but do you have it as your research going into making up future regulations? Um, my work specifically now, uh, I don't think it, drastically affects regulations in Texas. I I would assume maybe I'm assuming we might share our data with fish and wildlife. Um, and my, I'm sure they're doing studies on all kinds of, uh, chemicals and consumer advisories. So I feel like that would take a part in it. Um, other, aside from that, uh, mostly what I do currently is I enact the, uh, so I'm not sure if you, this might be just science jargon for you guys. So basically I'm, I'm like a frontline person for the EPA. So in 2004, the EPA installed this section 316B of the Clean Water Act, where I do impingement and entrainment studies. So it's basically all the water that gets sucked up into um, something like a power plant or a refinery, any of those industrial sites that needs those cooling water systems. And, um, so for the EPA, so in 2004, they've been doing these studies for many, many years. It's really interesting. You can look, you can, it's easy to find the researchers data out there. Uh, so back in the day, they used to think entrainment, which is when I think it's more like the, the fish that aren't supposed to get sucked up that make it into the actual system. Like they just expected an hundred percent mortality rate for any fish that made it into their entrainment system. Impingement is just the fish that gets sucked up right, right in the surface water that they're collecting to cool their, cool their systems down. Now with impingement, 
um, those fish that will be on screens that, um, my, my job is specifically like a lot of refineries, a lot of power plants use fish screens. And the new thing is cooling water towers. It's an open system. So you don't have to maintain and clean and do all these crazy studies on fish because it just keeps it at a good temperature. It doesn't make the fish travel or anything. And it just releases them wherever from my understanding. But, uh, God, I lost my train of thought again. I feel like I'm rambling. <laughs> okay. Um, the, uh, we're coming up to the next question before we get into the next section. Um, I just had a question for myself. Um, well, you know, you're pretty much aware of it, that we had that weird bacteria kill of, of Menhaden up in North, the Raritan, the back bays, a lot of that stuff. Um, did you do any kind of little studies about that? I've never done studies, but it is definitely noticeable. And I think it's, I really do want to start, I, I'm, I've been trying for like a year to see if there's a fish disease class somewhere, whether it's for free or it has like um, some kind of a fee for it, because I find it really interesting. So the Ben Hayden um, I've handled, especially like even right, my project ended in March and right, right towards the end of that project is when I started seeing it. In the, in the colder Colder months, if we do get menhaden, you don't see it as much, but they'll slowly start coming in. You'll start seeing more and more of those those welts and those red worms coming yeah. out of them. Yeah, yeah, we uh, yeah, we were at the boat docks, and you you definitely see them. They're they seem disembodied. They they can't focus. They're swimming around in circles, and it's just like I don't know. It's I mean, previous years we get the we get bunker kill offs too. But those were more like lack of oxygen because like the big bluefish and stuff like that push them into shallow waters. They, they lose oxygen and then they they suffocate. Yeah, we've years we've had that plenty of times. But this is totally something new that we've probably seen in the last just year or two. So I I just wondered if you had any idea of like if you did any studies or any, anything involved with that. That's all. Yeah, I feel like um, I actually talked to somebody recently about that. And the lack of oxygen thing is is a huge deal with with that, that bunker die off. I also think that the lack of oxygen or maybe they're pushing them into like dirtier water might contribute to them being more um, susceptible to a fungal infection or a parasitic infection. Gotcha. But I do know, do not touch them because apparently it can transfer to people depending on what kind of a fungal infection it is. Yeah. Uh, so even at work, like, um, some of my coworkers don't wear gloves. I wear gloves every single time after I learned that. <laughs> I was like, I am not handling these fish and waking up with red worm or some fungal infection on my skin like them. I don't want to look like a menhaden. <laughs> Swimming around in circles aimlessly. Yeah, it's 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 a whole thing. I know even um two years ago when we just started our project, I think it's just one of those things. I, don't, I haven't really studied it too much, but we actually had a giant influx of striped bass that succumb to really, really nasty fungal infections. Like they would look fuzzy, like the entire fish. I've seen plenty of dead stripers. Like it happens. They're stressed out. They have their spawn. Lord knows what happens to them or even natural mortality. But we would get the occasional one that was just long dead, but we had a weird pop for, I think it was in April or I think it was April where we were getting like schooly sized stripers, like for a chunk of time. And it was almost like every other, every other time we were sampling, we were sampling once a week and they would just be either completely freshly dead, but covered in this fungus or like pretty much on their way out. 
And it was almost like kind of sad to see. I was like, oh, that does not look like a fun way to go. Like they're just very, very sick, like covered from head to to toe in these sores. Has there been any kind of uh, inkling as to what's causing it from your, from your end, or is it still pretty new to, to, to your, uh, to your job at this point to figuring out what's going on there? Uh, It's new to me. I'm not really um, a toxicologist and we, you know, we take note of these things and I'm sure it's something Denrec would like to hear about or New Jersey or Pennsylvania. Like it's something to take note of, but we're not, you know, since our studies just to see what kind of fish are coming in, what their conditions are, it's not really um, like to assess and take samples of these fungal infections and to study it but yeah it's definitely very new (laughs) to me i didn't know that striper got fungal infections that bad and one last question before we move on um previous captains we've talked to from south jersey um they've talked we've talked to them um a couple of them experience have you had any specimens of tarpon up this far I've heard of it. Uh, okay. Me personally, no, okay. but um, several of my my bosses, coworkers, and even some of the data, the public data I've looked at, um, yeah. Yeah. just to see what they're getting in other refineries, and even just like for the state, like uh, I've I've definitely seen I've like been reading through papers, and it'll be like tarpon. I'm like, hold on, <laughs> a tarpon? They're usually not big or anything. They're, no. they're Juvenile, juveniles. Yeah. I, I've, I've seen a juvenile carcass. Um, a couple of captains I've talked to have seen them offshore three miles. Uh, I've had one captain say he's seen one in the marshes rolling on mullet during September. So, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm, I believe these captains and I mean, the carcass I seen was definitely hundred percent tarpon because I was born and raised in Florida. So I know what a tarpon looks like. So it's kind of like, so it's pretty crazy, but then occasionally we get one of the, uh, a dead manatee up here too. So, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah, up in the Delaware Bay, we'll get dead manatees washed it's, up on the shorelines. It's not surprising since, I mean, there. well, with climate change, that's yep. a whole can, can of worms. Uh, we might even be able to go red fishing soon. Um, <laughs> but the Gulf Stream isn't that far from us. Like, I even know, um, I used to volunteer at Camden Aquarium back when I, there was a moment in time where I was like, maybe I'll just be an aquarist instead of a marine biologist. But they actually collect a lot of their butterfly fish from the Gulf Stream, not too far off the coast of Jersey. So it wouldn't be surprising that, you know, tarpon's just cruising around the Florida coast and gets sucked into that stream. It's just like, all right, I'm just going to follow the food and ends up here somehow. <laughs> oh, looking for redfish. Just just FYI, they're here. Oh, uh, they are here? Yeah. Uh, a, cap- a, a captain I know already picked one up. So. Wow. Is it off the coast of New Jersey? Uh, back marshes of New Jersey. Oh. Yeah. Already I mean, they're right in Virginia with the waters getting warmer like it's it's crazy seeing this push of fish like a lot of a lot of my friends and 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 co-workers have been talking about that for a while too they're like it's gonna be crazy we're gonna probably start seeing some more southern species more and more even with you know with fishing or with work like yeah whether you're like like gill netting electrofishing working in it like the it's gonna be crazy seeing that that change over time i mean i hope so uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was about to say, yeah, I hope so. Because, I mean, back in the day, you know, was it 40s, 50s, Dan? We were the redfish capital of the world, right? Corson Inlet. Yeah, we were the redfish capital. We had bull reds here wow. for, forever. Because, uh, I mean, I know for a fact last year, a couple of bull reds were caught off the tip of South Jersey. Or within, in the, like the 40-inch, 45-inch range. 
um, uh, up all the way all the way up the coast we they've been picking off redfish like good slot fries 24 25 26 inch they come in with that blue tail because you know they be feeding on uh crabs crustaceans and stuff like that so um yeah we're gonna get an influx of really nice fish in the next few years if this cold ocean water keeps coming in we're, we're getting some weird plegics up here too so I've, I've, I, I've, we've talked about this before, but I've been in October down in Virginia beach, um, on, uh, the inside the Chesapeake Bay watching guys net cob mullet and pulling up 18, 19 inch snook in the, in the, in the nets in Virginia. I, I watched it happen. I saw six or seven of them in, in one, one throw. So it's happening. It's quietly happening. A lot of people know more about what's going on than what they're saying, but I mean, there's a legitimate uh, tarpon fishery in the Chesapeake Bay. Mm-hmm. There's a legitimate tarpon fishery behind that Assateague Island. I mean, the, like not, 100 pound plus fish back there. Yeah, not to mention the uh, the influx of shrimp in Virginia Beach. Now they they've moved up enough shrimp, brown shrimp that we there's actually a enough stability for a fishery for commercial guys to shrimp in Virginia Beach now. That's pretty uh-huh. far up. I know North Carolina has a good shrimping, South Carolina, but like all the way up to Virginia Beach, there's there's this it's stable enough that it can actually have a commercial shrimping business. That's crazy. I did I did some research on that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Live on a major word. Um, I did some research on commercial uh shrimping because of Texas, because that was a part of the whole thing. Like, is it, you know, is it affecting the shrimp? Is it affecting the fish? I didn't even realize like Texas is one of the, I think it might them and Alaska and maybe Massachusetts are like the top three shrimp guys. Like you don't even like hear about Virginia. You don't hear about the Carolinas. Like, you know, that they, they shrimp there too. I think they might. I And I've ever, have you guys ever seen like the trawl boats go out of Cape May and stuff? Are they shrimping or are they going for fish? Uh, the trawl boats out of Cape May are usually it's, it's leaving out squid. squid. I have, I have a buddy that works on a squid boat that leaves out of Cape May all the time. And he's, they, they go out for squid. Oh, that's crazy. I mean, they they, do, like, yeah, yeah like, probably other stuff too. But like, I know for, I know that we, they, they go out for squid. Um, I know our back marshes in South Jersey, we have shrimp back there because I've been cast netting for bait and I've occasionally picked up five, six inch shrimp. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, that's, like, I don't think grass shrimp get that big. No, right? no, they're definitely not grass shrimp. I have a photo of it. It's a full blown brown shrimp, like six inch brown shrimp. Wow. Yeah. Things are changing, man. It's, it's going to be interesting to see over the next, well, even over our lifetimes, it's going to be very drastic. I think. Yeah. The only thing we're missing is if we can ever get that back is that eelgrass. If we can get that eelgrass back in like around Corsons and stuff like that, if we get that eelgrass back, the reds will come back. That's the only reason they're gone is because that eelgrass is not there. for them. Do you know what has caused the eelgrass to disappear? Is it, is it, uh, I think from stalks. I think it's from storms and sand covering them up and it just killed them over the years. Oh, uh, so it's natural. It's not yeah, from like it's and all that stuff. Yeah, right? it's natural. Yeah. Like, yeah, like I said, we used to be the redfish capital world and that eelgrass right in Corson is, is what kept them here for so many years. And then as that died off, literally our redfish fishery died off too. Oh, wow. Well, Kate, I, I know this to be a fact. You're an absolutely killer multi uh, multi-species uh, fisherwoman. Uh, do you think that and we we kind of touched on this a little bit, but is there something about your job that makes you target specific fish more? Does it make you uh, target specific fish that you find are uh, a little bit in dire shape less? Like, 
does your job allow you to see the science and allow you to make your decisions of how you target fish? Um, in a way, I guess for the most part, I feel like my fishing experience and my science experience are somewhat separate because they're just so different and you kind of get put in a rock in a hard place. Um, it's hard to be both. Sure. Because in one aspect, you're conserving these species and in another, like you're also targeting them. And regardless of how well you treat your fish, you're going to cause them a little bit of stress. <laughs> Having a hook in your mouth caught doesn't feel too good. Right. But I guess the more um, sensitive species, like I know striped bass are doing a little bad. Like we just started targeting them this year. And I treat, I feel like I, like because I have all this information about that and I'm so worried about their population, I treat them like little babies. <laughs> <laughs> try to get them, you know, at them before you send them back in and out, like try to treat them with the utmost care. And I guess like I do have, I'm a little bit more sensitive to fish and, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely weird being both. <laughs> yeah. Like for example, uh, one, one thing, for example, like, do you ever get frustrated when you read a study that you feel you disagree with or that the science doesn't back up the study or what's your experience and doesn't back it up like snakeheads, for example. I was just going to say that. That's we, the, we, yeah, we love snakeheads. That's hard. Yeah. So I guess when you're reading the, the biggest problem I have from a science perspective, like when I have to read papers, I want to read the primary source. Not a lot of like everyday people are going to go through a 50 to hundred page boring science paper to decipher like, you know, the take the takeout from it. You're not going to, you're not going to spend hours reading that and deciphering the language when, and, and they're good about being like, okay, so this is what mm -hmm. we're trying to prove. These are the errors that could have happened, but here's, here's like the meat. You want to go to the results. You want to go to the discussion. You want to see the meat of what they found to be true, even though there's always some kind of a swing in that. Um, when you read articles that are like tertiary or, you know, it was CNN or somebody's blog, they can take, even though they're like, oh, there's been research done. They are taking excerpts from that primary source and twisting the truth around and making it, you know, that always, that grinds any scientist gears. Snakeheads is probably the worst. Everybody has an opinion about it. I feel like a lot of Fishery scientists have kind of become a little bit more lax about it since Maryland has had them established for so long and they're not finding them to be as decimating as, you know, the fear mongering that's been out in the news, <laughs> the Frankenfish are going to destroy yeah. the ecosystem. Um, I haven't read the papers yet. I've, I've looked into some of them, but I, a lot of bass fishermen hate them because it, they think they're going to decimate the bass yeah. population. And what they found is that, like when they cut their stomachs open to see what they've been eating, it's very minimal that they're eating bass, but it doesn't mean that they're, they're going to affect the ecosystem in some way or another. They're still eating crawfish. They're still eating minnows and they're also competition. Sure, so sure. Yep. they're taking it away from other fish too. So that's my rock in a hard place. Cause I, yeah. I like fishing for them and it's hard. Um, but you also have to remember they're not the only invasive species we have in our waters. Right. We have flatheads, we have yep. carp, even technically largemouth bass were introduced, even our beloved rainbow trout. I actually just read a whole book on the great, the great traveling of the trout, like how brown trout came from Germany and rainbows came by train from um, California. Like it's just been, oh, sorry, my cats are going crazy. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just crazy to think that, uh, 
you know, these, these creatures that people respect and they are sport fishing for them. They're like, oh, trout are amazing. We're going to stock them. We're going to do this. They're invasive too, technically, you know, they're introduced. (laughs) They are, uh, I guess, considered a welcome introduction to most people, whereas snakeheads were kind of not so welcome by a lot. But what, what I, what I have found is that based off of the things that I've read and I'm no scientist, but I I'm, I'm tied in with a lot of people. I've been after snakeheads for many, many years now. And I've tried to, you know, bring on, like take on some of read the science. So I have a better understanding. And it seems like they have more effect on closed systems, which is an obvious thing, you know, because obviously they're not the, 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 the bait fish are in there. They're not moving out of there. They're not pushing fish out of there. So what are they doing? They're over competing for food uh, sources and then they're eating they're, they're even in some senses being becoming cannibalistic like yeah. where yeah wherever like down down south for example uh, the eastern shore there is a legitimate problem there i mean they've done studies there where 80 percent of the biomass on, on a specific uh, stem of the rivers down there is snakeheads wow they're finding more snakeheads in the bellies of snakeheads so they're they're just running out of food sources down there now i don't i haven't seen the kind of things up here that I've seen down there being, I fish all over. I get to take all this different perspectives from a lot of different people. And it's, 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 it's pretty, it's pretty jarring to see what you see down there compared to what we see. Cause you know, we have a small snapshot here. We don't have as big of a fishery here compared to what they have down there in Maryland. And that that's just exploded down there and it's snakehead, snakehead, snakeheads in a lot of these waters. And there's not a whole lot else. Now, the one thing I have noticed up here is a couple spots where I fish for both snakehead and bowfin. I'm finding that the snakeheads are out competing the bowfin and I'm catching bowfin that are just, they, they should be eight pound fish and they're three or four pound fish. They're all head, no body. So it seems like they are a more aggressive predator than the bowfin, just from my take on what I've seen compared to six years ago, compared to now caught more bowfin then not as much now. Now, I'm no scientist. I'm just noticing what I'm seeing different. Now, are you seeing the same things? Absolutely. Like that's definitely like competition is the number one. Yeah. Like if they're more aggressive than the bowfin, if they're stronger than the bowfin, they're going to outcompete them every time. Um, you know, there's checks and balances, and we might have a different ecosystem than they do at the Eastern Shore too. Because uh, I know even people talk about how like they they you know mom and dad protect the fry when it comes to a snakehead. But you're still going to get bass to take a mouthful of their babies. Oh, yeah. so, but hopefully it doesn't turn into something like that where um, it completely just like, like you said, it's more closed systems. I wouldn't I, I can't see that really happening in our river because we we have bigger predators than the snakeheads in our rivers. We have musky and flatheads and they're like a little noodle to them. <laughs> like, yep. <laughs> but in those closed water systems or like. I don't know what to call like the swamps and everything. It's, it's a little nerve wracking because you don't know what's going to happen. Um, in my experience, it's because I'm so new to freshwater fishing where we fish for snakeheads and bowfins every now and then I'll see a really, really nice bass, like a three pound bass and be like, Oh, okay, well that's cool. (laughs) But, and you'll see like, um, sunnies and minnows and everything, but I guess, I don't know when they were introduced a while ago. What was it? early 2000s or something in the field 2004 in meadow lake 2004 meadow lake they were introduced and i don't know i see it's hard to say because it's never been confirmed that those fish are what ended up over here on the on the jersey side of things right so 
obviously they either moved across the river, they were, they were helped across the river. Mm-hmm. Now it was also deemed that the strain of snakeheads that were down on the Eastern shore came from the Jersey strain, same DNA. They share the same DNA. So I, I'm not, like I said, no scientist, but I, I, I get off on some of the science of this stuff. I really like to, to know what I'm talking about. And so obviously all those fish kind of came from up here and down there. I mean, you could literally stand in the same spot and catch 60 fish in an hour and a half without moving. And it's, it's kind of crazy. It's kind of, it's, it's fun, but it, it's like, it's like if you go on a, a place where there's your fish in bluegill beds, you get a bite every time you get over it. Right. So it's, it's one of those things where, you know, there, there's no balance to the system down there that they have no pickerel left to pick, pushed out white perch there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of problems down there yeah i'm crossing my fingers but like i said they they haven't been up here that much shorter of a period of time than they were down there so i just think it's a completely different system and the way the way they're producing down there that there's just so much untapped water that they those play those fish have plenty of room to hide plenty of bait fish and plenty of um waters that people can't even go to. So they're reproducing and they have a warmer, a little bit warmer of a climate. So whereas we might get two spawns or three spawns out of a fish here, they have the potential to get four or five there under perfect conditions. So it's just the recipe for disaster down there. Whereas I think it's a little bit more in check up here from what I've seen. Oh, absolutely. I think that the warmer climate definitely has something to do with it. Oh, for sure. No snakehead scientist expert, but It's definitely like, I mean, our waters are completely different from theirs. It could be the quality. It could be the locations. It, like you said, it could be the, the the water temperature. Even they can't get as many spawns in. It could be because maybe we have more predatory populations than they do for whatever reason. We might have a little bit more bass or per, I'm sure perch, perch are aggressive too. They'll eat, they'll eat a little snakehead fry if they get one. <laughs> well, in the bowfin, they don't have the bowfin down there either. So that's another thing that helps keep them in check up here because- I know a lot of the places I fish, some more than others have bowfin there too, but snakeheads. I've literally caught a bowfin that caught a snakehead on the next cast in the same two feet of water. They, they, they don't, they, they share water. They're both aggressive. I've had them to where I try to get a picture of this, but I'm, I'm working a frog lure, right? And I have, I'm working the stretch of a channel. I'm bringing it through some lily pads to open water. And I have a face off with a snakehead and a, and a bowfin. And they're both the lures in the middle of the water. And I'm like, oh, I got to get a picture of this. I'm trying to get my hand out of my pocket. My finger's wet, so I can't push the button down. It was when I still had the push button and not to swipe. I'm like, that, and then I spooked them. And I was like, damn it. That was like the perfect opportunity for the coolest picture. And I blew it. I literally just had that happen to me the other day. <laughs> it's, it's the coolest had, thing. It's like you I had two of them. Off. It's, it's, it's exciting. I saw yeah. these two big V's coming at my frog and I was like, Oh, Oh God, who's going to get it. And they both missed. But, um, the one I caught later and I'm pretty sure it was the snakehead, but the, the this big, beautiful bowfin, I think it was a male because he said he had the teal on him still. Yeah. Like, cause I don't know. I think they're like curious or they don't mind kayaks too much. He came right up to my kayak after that and just like stared at me. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's, it's, I've literally, I, I've been, I've fished for both of them for, I think the first one I caught was 2015, but I've fished for them for a lot and they, they're lazy fish. Like they, you can spook them and they go like four inches. Like they don't, they don't go anywhere. They just go down as opposed to away. 
I feel like they're a little bit more like curious too. I've had Bofin come right up to my kayak staring at me like, what the hell are you doing here? Like, what is, what is this? And, and then like the lazy thing too, I think I caught like a handful in the spring so far and all the ones I've caught that that was the most aggressive one I saw that was last weekend. So things were heating up, but all the ones I caught, I literally would find them and then stick a paddle tail on top of their head and bounce it on their head until they ate it. Yeah. (laughs) come to me like i'm just gonna sit here and relax whereas like the snakeheads at the same time are chasing baits down yeah that that's that and that's exactly what i'm saying you you find that the i've found that the snakeheads in the same waters are exponentially more aggressive than the bowfin now if you if you right place right time the bowfin's going to hit 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 your offering but more times than not the snakehead is 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 doing the dirty and the bowfin's just kind of hanging watching so, I think they might be faster too, because I've never, I've, I've not, I haven't caught enough bowfin to really say, but I've never seen bowfin be as acrobatic as oh, snakeheads. Yeah, for sure. But I will say, bowfin put up a, a much greater fight, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, and they also like to run at you, which is weird. Yeah, like so that's what I've noticed. Picking up line, picking up line, like crap. Am I gonna, am I gonna catch up to this thing? So, so, so bouncing out to that, I think I probably know one of these, but what are your three favorite fish to target and why? So my three favorite fish, um, definitely ever since Texas, I have fallen in love with redfish. Um, the, the first instance, like my first captain was a guy from Louisiana and I actually worked on his shrimp. It it was like a, not a shrimp boat. I don't know. You know, the, I don't know what kind of boat to call it. You know those big boats they have down south with all the tires that line it? Yes. You know what I'm talking about? It was one of those. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely very interesting. And he's like, oh, he's like, oh, you're from Pennsylvania. He's like, have you ever caught a redfish? I'm like, no, I've never, I, I know what they are, but I've never caught one. He's like, oh, you're going to love this. He's like, we're, he's like, I don't know what we have to do. But we're going to make sure you catch one while you're down here. And the way he described their fight, he's like, you know, he's like, you've caught a large mouth bass, right? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, imagine that on steroids. And that is a redfish. Like they definitely are tanks. Like I love how much they run. I love their strength. Like it's definitely one of my favorite fish to catch now, especially that when you start hooking into the bigger ones, it's like, it's insane. Just yeah, the- I, I, I get made fun of by this guy over here. Cause he's like, Dan's our only non Jersey fisherman because I go South, I go North, I go all over the place, but listen, I, I like to, one day I could be targeting salmon. Another day I could be targeting redfish. Another day I could be targeting flounder. Another day I could be targeting lake trout. Yeah. I never know what it's going to be. It's just really, I wake up like, man, today, I think I'm going to go catch some flounder. I love it. And it if, awesome. <laughs> if, if, if redfish was readily available to me here in New Jersey and not just these unicorns he's chasing, then, then I would, uh, it, it doesn't would, count. It doesn't here. count. It doesn't count if it doesn't all count. All counts. Okay. Boat fish don't count. That's okay. <laughs> I said that for me, I've said that for, that for many years until I bought my own. So now, yeah, of course, now all boat fish count. <laughs> <laughs> so what are your other two tops, top fish that you like to target Kate? I would say if I just want to have a fun day, I love snakeheads and bowfin dude. Like if they're on, they're on, I don't care how small they are. Like it is a fun day. Just um, when you get, have like a 20, 30 fish day and they're just, ha- you could throw a piece of broccoli out there and they're just going to attack it. Like, I think that's more of like, we pick those days to go out when, you know, if we went, 
fishing for like lake trout the day before and got skunked. I'm like, all right, let's go for snakeheads tomorrow. It's warm. It's cloudy. We know they're going to, they're going to be on. Like that's always a really fun day. I feel like it, there's not as much disappointment with those fish Sure, they're a fun fight. Um, for the harder ones though, I would say anything in the ESOC species, I think they're definitely hands down my favorite fish, but just the way they look, the way they act, they're so mysterious. And like I said before, um, I think pike, I would love to feel what a 40 to 50 inch pike fight feels like. <laughs> Me too. I tried. I tried. I, I found yeah. I found them this big in a little puddle. Yeah, the the ones we usually catch, we usually just explore the entirety of the Passaic River. They're just everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's some there's some big ones up there. They're in there. They just they're just in little pockets. You'll never find them. Yeah, they're little unicorns. You'll catch a bunch of the smaller ones, like 15 to 25 yeah. is usually where, but even those little guys, they, your rod just bends right in half. Like they are, they are, they are fighters and they fight. I, I, I think pike <coughs> fight so much harder than musky. Like they just don't give up. And even when you get them to the boat and they're tired, you think they're done. They're not. And they're full of teeth. <laughs> it's a little stressful sometimes. Um, those are definitely on my bucket list. In the next few years, uh, ginormous northern pike and a muskie on a fly. Oh, I'm, yeah. but, but, but I'm going up to Canada for that. Uh, that's that's where all the big big pike are, I think, too. Because but, but we're going to turn it back just for a second about the snakeheads. We I always debate with Dan about this, and I just I want your honest answer: top water or subsurface? Which one do you like? I know what she's going to say. All right. Well, when I when I worry about you, worry about her answer. That's uh, okay. I think for fun, top water. I think if it's not going so hot, especially in the early season, I don't even bother with top water. I think subsurface is the way to go. I think that, especially if you're in a more pressured area, I think they see frogs all damn day long. And when you do something a little different, you throw a paddle tail out there, they absolutely crush it. And people are sitting there pissed off that you're catching them left and right. They're sitting there still throwing a frog when the water is like 50 degrees. (laughs) I think um, I think I've had more luck on paddle tails than I have on, and I think the hookup ratio is better too. Not only that, they fight better subsurface too. They don't give up. Whereas oh, yeah. you're skiing them across all that muck on the top. They just you just like it's like a wet towel, like unless it's a big fish. But subsurface, they don't give up. They dive, they dive, they dive. I I I will take it to my grave. I prefer to catch them subsurface. When it switches to top water, I switch to salt water. Oh yeah, I'll take top water. I'll revisit it every once in a while because it's fun. But I, I like I, I, I just like the explosions. That's just what I do. Top water, anything, anything I can catch on top water, it's happening. I even even on the paddle tails, I've had them launch out of the water grabbing those yeah, paddle yeah. tails because I'll usually I won't if they're really sluggish, I'll kind of keep them towards the bottom. If they're a little bit more on, I'll keep them closer to the surface because sometimes even kind of skirting it on the surface and letting that paddle make a little bit of noise will. They'll fire them up. <laughs> well, may, may, maybe I just haven't gotten into that subsurface fight. I won't know because I've always, I mean, I've, like, I've only been targeting for a year. So I've only, I've only been spoiled by the top water bite. So, yeah, so, summer is where the top water bites at. I think, um, cause that's, we, I think we throw a little more top water when it's hot out. I think yeah, it's, it's just super hot. Riled, out, riled up. And I, I also like the weird thing with snakeheads, I think if you make a lot of noise, well, like if you're using it, sometimes even if you're using a spinner, just, just to create some noise, I think it draws them in. That's, that's something else I noticed. That's really weird. I think if you, 
stay in one area for long enough and you create enough ruckus, I think it does. They're like, oh, what's that over there? And eventually you get a couple that come in and check it out. And that's definitely like a weird thing I've noticed with them compared to any other fish. I think that they are attracted to certain noises. I I prefer to fish um, my my buddy Trung, who has SS Custom Baits, and he has these these uh, Cobra spinner baits that just thump like no other. And when I tell you these fish school, you and I fish a very specific place a lot. Um, these fish, I found them schooling in that area where I'll have seven, eight of them chase it in. I've never seen it any place else. I've seen, I've seen pictures of a bunch of them congregated and congregated in one area, but that one place where we fish, I've, I'll, I'll cast it out in the channel, bring it back slow, slow, slow. And I'll see six, seven of them just taking a swipe out of it. One admit, one misses, it's in the other one's mouth before you know it. And that to me is where it's at. That's fun. Oh, it's wild. And yeah, it is crazy how most of the time I think they're pretty solitary, but I, I, I know what you're talking about. Like even, even when you, when it's a clear day, you can see through the water. I've seen multiples in the same area. Just it's not, yeah. It's not just a pair. Like there's six or seven of them that'll, that'll follow the bait. in. it's not like they're, they're paired up and it's this or that. Like there's two spots that I fish that are like this similar setup. There's a channel with edges that are completely grown in. And then you, you, you get them where they'll, they'll come out, I guess, out of the, the lily pads and follow it all the way up. And it's like, it blows your mind because you'll see, and not even just one size class, like you'll see an eight pounder next to a two pounder. And it's, it's, it's just, I've never seen any place else. I've tried to get video of it. It's just not clean enough. You know, that spot, it's not clean enough there to get a, no, a it's quality hard. video of it. Have you and, noticed, um, cause I haven't, I didn't see a lot of, uh, fry balls this year. Maybe I feel like I feel like we like started fishing for something else. And I kind of missed that part of the summer last year. Do you notice um, that when they do have their fry, do they kind of separate because they're so focused on protecting their young or anything? Or do you think they're still kind of in like clumped together, but they just have their little, their babies with them? <laughs> yeah. Like, so when there's fry balls, I don't, I don't notice that schooling happening at that point. Not at all. No. I feel like that's and, when and, they get really aggressive. And it, that, that, that's still, that's still, we're still in the midst of that. So there's, there's pairs in some places. I've seen two or three fry balls already not it's not that that hasn't blown up yet no i hate i hate when they all decide to spawn at once and yeah. that they don't want to bite <laughs> yeah, i i usually i usually once once i see fry balls that's when i move on because I, I don't fish for them when, when they're on fry i know a lot of people do i, I catch plenty i don't want to make it even easier i mean they're already a pretty easy fish to catch if you know you what you've been doing and yeah and i kind of i kind of i i kind of bridge this uh this little gap where i I I'm into conservation and I know they're a problem, but I don't want to mess with them when they're doing their thing with their babies. It's, I know it's bad. There's going to be people listening. It'll be like, what is he saying? But listen, I've been fishing for these fish for like nine years. So I kind of, I kind of love them a little bit, but you know, I, they also, I also hate them because they take up so much of my spring. And then I'm like, God, what did I do all spring? <laughs> yeah. We, we had to take a break and that's, we, we went hardcore for musky. <laughs> like, it's like once we kind of figured when their spawn was over, it was, it was game time. I think Mike got, what did you get two? Yeah, he got two and I got the one big ends. <laughs> I'm happy with that. You guys fished yeah. 10 minutes from me. I, I live close to one of those places, by the way. Oh, nice. Yeah. There's, there's it's like, they're not secret spots, but yeah. it's, no, no, no need to add pressure to places we fish though. No, because especially with musky, that is a big hot topic. I know snakeheads are so controversial just because they're invasive and, I also don't agree with um, 
I don't even know if I should say this, like how John Hines like tries to force you to kill them. I don't think that they should nope. put that management pressure on any person. Like you don't right. know what kind of religious beliefs they have regardless. Like you, if you're going to maintain a fishery, the amount of fishermen that can kill a snakehead is not even going to put a dent in when you can bring, if you really want to maintain that or you want to manage it, you, go bring a gill net in, go bring an electro fisher in, figure it out. Like don't make the poor recreational fishermen sit there. And we used to, we used to kill them and the, back when we first started, because I felt bad. I was a fishery scientist. I'm like, oh, I really shouldn't let, be letting these fish go. And until you realize how hard it is to actually kill them. Yeah. And uh, it's not humane. I don't, I, we didn't enjoy it at all. Like, it's just, it, they're so thick, like their meat and their heads and their, their skulls are just so thick there. I don't think there's a very, unless you take a machete to their head. Like, I really don't think there's a very humane way of killing them. <laughs> not, not, not only that, like they expect you to kill them and then they'll tell you, I, I have video of the guys there that work there. Say, so just toss them in the woods. Like, this is like a, this is a bird watching community and you're going to toss carcasses of fish in the woods if you're not going to keep them. And then the like, flip you, want to, you want them to complain more? <laughs> the smell. Then, then the flip side of this is if you're eating those fish out of those waters, you're, you're doing something wrong. Like, I mean, <laughs> I've seen, I've seen people that have filleted a snakehead from John Hines and the flesh is more, has a brown tinge to it compared to other it's just not, it's not smart. It's not smart. I, no, I think you're to do something people. there. If they, and, and listen, they, they, they have half of the, more than half of the place shut off the fishing. Like you want, you want these recreational guys to come in here and, and help you with your problem. Yet you're not allowing access to most of the places where they can catch them. No. Oh, and if they're going to enforce it and ticket people too, I think that, you know, I get it. I get it. they're invasive. I get like, you're trying to protect your, your wetland, your birds. And, but like, at the very bare minimum, maybe have a disposal, like a bin or something to put them in. Like, something. And, yeah. And, and plus, I know snakeheads aren't light. Like, if you catch like six snakeheads in a day, imagine having to lug that around that park all day. I mean, they're all going to be alive still. And that's all the thing people don't realize they breathe air. Like, they can't <laughs> live forever out of the water. But that's the thing, too. So you throw them in the woods, like, if it's strong enough and healthy enough, it'll, it'll figure, it'll make its way right back. <laughs> like I, my, my boss actually misidentified. Um, uh, he's like, Oh, I got a snake head here. And I'm like, send me a picture right now. And it was a bowfin. And I was like, that's not a snake. It's a bowfin, Ryan. <laughs> but he's like, well, it's been in the bucket for like five hours. It's probably dead. I'm like, it's not dead. I'll be there soon. I'll deal with it. And he's like, no, nah, it's gotta be dead. And I picked this thing up and he's like, Oh my God. <laughs> he's like, you're just going to pick it up like that. Like, yeah, it's alive. Look, <laughs> I've, I've had buddies who have fished down on the Eastern shore, which is about three hours away from here, cut the gills on a snakeheads, put them under ice, get home to clean them hours later. And they're still alive that there there's not a more resilient fish out there than, than snakeheads. So it's just, like you said, it's not humane what they're asking you to do in there. I haven't fished in there in over two years just because I don't agree with what they're doing there. I know there's great fish in there. I used to catch some massive yeah. fish in there. I just refused to go there. I just can't. I, I mean, I, I, there was one time, one time the lady had her binoculars on me from the woods and I, she gave me a warning. And I'm out of here. So done with that. Yeah, All right. I feel like a lot of fishermen don't fish there anymore because of that. Like they don't feel comfortable. They don't feel like they can just relax and enjoy their day. And yeah. that's not right. And that's not going to help your 
cause at all. Like they've, they've actually no done the opposite. They've done the exact opposite. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> so going back to snakeheads, what is your what is your PB snakehead? Oh crap! How big was that one last year? Think or what? No, the other one. There's eight point <laughs> seven, and then there was. Remember, remember this. Remember the secret place. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I bet you I know it. Secret yeah. place. <laughs> uh, probably the nine pound range. I forget the. I, it's it's on. I think his Instagram or my Instagram. The weight, but very nice. Yeah, the thing was a tank. He was very butt hurt. <laughs> yeah, we can't get to the double digits, man. We've. I mean, we've only been fishing for him for what two, three years. Maybe, maybe that, but we've tried, we've tried so many, but I've seen them. I've seen them. <laughs> I've, we've yet to catch a double digit. I think I'm on year nine and I think I only have like six double digits. So. Yeah. I don't know. Like I don't, I wanted to like actually research in that they're like how big they get in their natural, like, like where they come, come from. I guess it's like Thailand or I know they're a Northern snakehead. So I'm assuming they're like in the more Northern range of that. Russia, China. Russia, China, and there's another place that they're they're from, but yeah, they 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 max out here in the U.S. further than they do in their natural habitat. Wow, I did not know that. That's crazy. Yeah, like, I mean, there's the, the the some of the records from down Virginia, Maryland area are are fish that are pushing 40 inches, and they're documented to tap out around 32, 33 inches in like Russian area and all that. So. I think. I think I read somewhere. I think the biggest one in Eastern Shore was somewhere around like 23, 24 pounds. Yeah, they've they've gotten 23, 24 pounders of fike nets down there. Yeah, yeah, I know Kaz gotten some really big ones in the nets. Yeah. Oh my God. So if, if you want your chance at a double digit, you let me know and I'll send you on your way. I have all the spots. All yeah, right. I, I broke one off last year and I almost cried. So. Yeah. I was send there. It. Send us. <laughs> I was there for it. We'll we'll trade uh we'll trade big snakehead spots for northern pike spots. Oh, that's easy. <laughs> Mike, 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 and I have already I've already worked this out. We've already talked about it, so we just got to let put it into motion. Yeah, all we right. Got to find the big ones though. That's the only problem. You, you can catch pike all day. It's still fun. Like those twenty some inch pike. It's it's what. It's amazing, bro. Oh. Oh, sorry, Mike's chiming in. He's like, it's the baits. We gotta switch up the baits we're throwing. <laughs> all right. So what what are your bucket list fish that you have left to settle up with? I mean, obviously you get all over the place. What what other fish do you have out there that you haven't targeted yet that, that are that are gonna happen at some point? Oh, I made a list because I got it's so hard to like pinpoint what I want because I love I want to catch every fish that's in this world. <laughs> We've already had quite a few. Oh, so one of the big ones that I keep seeing more and more, and I really, really would love to travel to British Columbia for is white sturgeon. <laughs> wow. That's a first. We have not heard that one yet. Yeah. I mean, they get, I know there was, um, there was an article, I think it was last year, the year before I forget there was a, fa- it was father's day, probably the best father's day for this father and son ever. And, um, I forget, I think it was, it was either six or 900 pounds. I mean, that's a huge difference, but that's, that's how big that, that white sturgeon was. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure they're white surging because they have lake surgeon, green surgeon in that area too. But they just look like they fight. Like they're they're acrobatic. They 
the, it's just, they're just such weird dinosaur looking fish. Like I worked with Atlantic surgeon and short nose surgeon, and yeah, I just have yeah. such a respect for them because they just, they literally look like living dinosaurs. Yeah. We've so, caught, we've, we've caught an Atlantic surgeon about three years ago off the, off the surf. It was, wow. it was, and then, and then we, and then uh, I think our buddy, he put it on Instagram and then the, the department of fishery <laughs> reached out to him right away and told him to take the photo down. And they, uh, they yeah, they called, yeah, yeah, they called him. They're like, all right, we need to know where you caught it, what you caught it on and approximately how long was it? And did you release it? And they're, they're like, it was like instantly within a few minutes, they reached out right away. And, and they don't mess photo. around. They no, do they not definitely mess don't. around. They don't. <laughs> I even, even working with them, like my boss made it a point whenever, because we, we gill net the juveniles and we tag them. Um, but every time we would get one, he's like, get it, get it, get it. It was like a mad dash. Cause he's like, if we, if we were to even accidentally kill one of them, it, it would, they would pull our permit for research. Like they do not mess around with them because they're so endangered. And, um, there's a guy, I got to get his last name. You'd. You would love to talk to him. His name, I know his, his name's Hal. I just call him Hal the Surgeon Guy. He's been working on the Delaware <laughs> River for eternity. Like he's probably in his 70s and he's still on his John boat doing research out there. And he like they only believe that there's like a hundred breeding adults that go in and out of the river every single year, and that's it. Wow. I mean, they're I think they're coming back, but it, it's weird because like my boss would say he's like, there's years where we get none, no juveniles. He's like, and then the year I was there, we got like 200 in the fall. And he's like, it, he's like, I don't understand. <laughs> he's like, I don't know why sometimes they're there. Sometimes they're not depending on their spawn or how the year went. Like they're extremely protected. And that's, that's good that they're catching them in the surf. Maybe hopefully they're coming back and hopefully they're making more little surgeon in our river. I know that, that they've had a successful program down on the James river in Virginia and they've, they've seen a comeback down there. So hopefully we can see some of that success up this way as well. Oh yeah. Cause we, we, we didn't get to study adult. I mean, the Delaware river is so big. It's like impossible to try to get those ad breeding adults. And there's so few, you don't really want to mess with them. I think we, we did the uh, Nanticoke river and the entirety of that project. I was actually away in Greece for almost like a month and I thought I was going to miss the whole project. I was very, very lucky. I got to see one adult in the three or four months. I think they did the project. They only technically caught two adults in that river the whole time. Uh, Cause they caught the one twice by accident. Oh, <laughs> Catch and release works. Yep. I, I've, I've been fishing for stripers at Conowingo and we've seen them go airborne, <laughs> uh, airborne there um, probably 20 yards out. Like you'll see them just go way out of the water and, and they're not, I mean, that, that water, I mean, the, I don't know if you know much about Conowingo. It's pretty shallow. Like it's, it's not, it's not super deep there below the gates, uh, below the. Yeah. It's, yeah it's, you would think it would be deeper there because there's yeah, so much gushing water. And it's just like, you would think from the velocity and the pressure, it would kind of like bore it yeah, a little yeah. bit deeper. <laughs> it's just amazing. The size of fish that, that, that are down there. I mean, this probably was five, six feet, not a huge one, but it was, it was, it was a, an adult sized fish and it was cool to see. I, I'll never forget that. It was probably see, God, we'll 10, see in Delaware. you see him in the Delaware a lot. Yeah. And the, the, the most I've seen, we were actually at Camden aquarium the one day and we were just outside, like having a cigarette with, and we had my nephew and my family with me and Mike's looking out, out at the water right there. And one jumped right in front of us. And he's like, what was that? I'm like, that was a surgeon. He's like, nah, <laughs> I'm like, mm-hmm. 
And then up closer to the Navy Yard and where all the barges are, you don't really see a lot of recreational traffic up there, but we, we would go up there just to see if we could find juveniles or Markham and stuff. And the first time I ever saw one was all the way up there. And I was like, I asked my boss, I'm like, Ian, what was that? And he's like, a surgeon. I'm like, why, why did that five foot fish just jump out of the water like that? Do they do that a lot? He's like, yep. Nobody knows why. <laughs> he's like, I'm, he's like, I'm a, I'm a surgeon biologist. I have no, we, we have no idea why they do that. <laughs> Yeah, I know a lot of my buddies will be out surf fishing or be out on the boat striper fishing. See them going airborne out there too. So now we're gonna get we're gonna start. I'm gonna start wrapping up my questions here, but I got a good I got a good one for you. Now I fished with I fished next to you and Mike uh, when we were walleye fishing, but you guys fish together all the time. How often does it get competitive between between the two of you? And uh, what fish has he caught that really gets you jealous, and vice versa? Like, is there something that he has? he has down that you don't and, and something that you do better than he does. <laughs> yes. Um, definitely. So we kind of each have our own knack for certain species and it's definitely noticeable. I think, um, you know, cause there's always, you always get a little tiny, tiny butt hurt when, you know, you're significant <laughs> others catching a bigger fish than you or they're like having all the luck that day and you're sitting there casting your arms off and you're like why can't i just hook into one fish today and you're sitting here like you're on like your 10th fish yeah i think i think the one i'm the most jealous about with him is musky i have taken so many of his musky pictures and, and like i'm there right next to him fishing casting all day every day until my arms fall off and i'm like what am i doing wrong i don't understand like he's had two or three musky days and i'm sitting there like i'm like i'm not even taking your pictures anymore i'm done <laughs> Set up the time yourself, Mike. Right? Like, <laughs> and, and, and how about him? Is, is there something that, that you do a little better than he does that he gets a little uh, little jealous of? Oh, yeah. Uh, so last year, um, I think I I think I got the snakeheads and both on him. Like, there's days where he'll see the same thing. He'll, he gets all butthurt. He gets all upset. And he'll, like, scuttle away on his kayak because he's just like, <laughs> oh, my God. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, what are you using? He'll even be like, give me that frog or give me, like, what color paddle tail? Like, he's like, I, he's like, I don't care what's on your line. He's like, cut your line and give it to me because he's like, I'm so mad right now. <laughs> like, he got the right kind of wiggle. He doesn't have the wiggle. The, the finesse, that. And then um, we started going for lake trout last year. Uh, for the first time, like we, we've never been deep water jigging. Yeah. And I yeah. guess maybe, maybe it's a female's touch with that. I don't know. Cause it's just, you kind of got to finesse and like, it's a, it's a totally different type of fishing. Like it's just being like 80 feet in the water and just lightly finessing these little jigs or paddle tails or whatever you have down there. Like I had a day where we were just trying to use all kinds of different lures. I, we found, and he still gets mad about this. He bought this little tiny ice fishing lure. It's like, yay, big and like just silver and blue kind of looked like a little tiny like herring or shad. But it was really tiny and really heavy. So it goes down real fast. And he's like, because they were using bigger spoons and everything. I'm like, let me try this little tiny guy. And I absolutely slayed that day. I got my, I broke my PB Smalley twice. I got the biggest lake trout of the day. I got a rainbow trout. I don't know if I got the salmon that day too, but he was. <laughs> okay, I got the salmon that day too. <laughs> I crushed it. Elephants eat peanuts. Elephants eat peanuts. My my only muskie came on a one inch lure like that. It's it's amazing how that works. And I was I was fishing for yellow perch and crappie, and I had just read a uh, an article in in Fisherman 
that said that these little tiny jigging wrap type lures work well in open water after ice out. Uh, so obviously this was a little bit way past ice out, but I see some, I tie on this little, it's, it was a Northland tackle puppet minnow hook on the front hook on the back, like a typical jigging oh, wrap yeah. lure. And, um, I drop it down and I see like these blue, like bluegills boiling on the top of the water. So I'm like, yeah, let me, let me investigate. I'm fishing six pound test, a little 50 size reel, a little crappy rod, like a crappy fishing rod, like a, uh, an actual crappy, the, the fish. And lo and behold, the first time I drop it down, I, I hook up and I'm like, God, what did I do? Did I snag a carp or something? Next thing I know, yep. six pound test. I'm having to finesse this fish all over the lake. My father-in-law's uh, right next to me. It's a week after my, <laughs> my son was born. And okay. um, he tied his kayak to my tie, my kayak because we were trying to slow this fish down. There was no way like I fought this, I, I, I was finessing this fish for over 25 minutes. Oh my God. Because like every time I would get it up close to me, it would just take another, take another run. It was 45 inch musky. It was about 30 pounds, I think. And. Oh my God. Yeah. That's, a, that's a lot of musky for that. On, <laughs> on a lure of that, that big. I obviously I'm fishing for panfish. I have no net. My father-in-law hands me like a trout net. I'm like, what the hell am I going to do with this? <laughs> So I get it up next to me like seven times. And finally, the, the last time I'm able to get it in the boat. And if you scroll way down to the beginning of my Instagram, you'll see that fish. But mm. oh my God, it was, it was nuts. Like six Hopefully pounds. It was now. tired. So it didn't thrash around your kayak. No, no. And that's what he said. He's like, dude, you got the head of that thing right in your, your groin area. You better, you better, oh. you better maneuver that thing around. Like, I don't have any place to put this thing right now. I'm not, I wasn't prepared for this. Like, I, I, I was shaking for probably a day and a half after that. It was such a rush. Oh, absolutely. I, I've never caught one on purpose. I, I've only gotten that one like that. And I, 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 I don't target them a lot, but I plan to now. So it's, I, I swear to God, you get more follows when you're not targeting them or hook yeah. into them. Like I hear a lot of guys that bass fish catch them on frogs and stuff all the time. And I'm like, what? <laughs> that would be, be pretty cool to get them on top water. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Mike, Mike's only gotten one on top water. I think his first one ever out of the Stuckel river. Whopper plopper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's oh, they're, they're a crazy fight. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to up my game a little bit on the ESOC species. Cause I, I, I've always been fascinated, but now I'm trying to like do something I haven't done, build, build, build up my book a little bit. Oh yeah. It's a lot of blood, sweat and tears. Yeah. For sure. Fishing for musky. More so tears. I got to drag my boat out of saltwater and take it up to the special lake. No, I got to oh, go. No, I got to go hunt, hunt for them up there. Well, there's a lot of days where you won't move fish. The worst, I think, is when you have days where you move the fish and you don't hook into any. You get so excited. You see, you get like, like what they call like buck fever when you're hunting. It's like that with musky. I keep calling it the musky fever because every time I get a follow, I just start shaking. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my God, is it about to happen? And they're like, no. Like I've they'll follow it right to the boat. They'll open their mouth at it. They'll bump it. I've had, I had, um, I was hooked into one on a, like you said, elephant sea peanuts. I had a 30 some inch muskie try to eat a trout spinner not too long ago. And I was like, Oh God, Oh God. I'm like, I can't bite it, but maybe not. Cause I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. It's like, there's, there's often times where I'm like, I have no business doing what I'm doing right now. If I catch anything, I'm going to be so screwed. 
exactly. <laughs> so we both like that. I'm like, holy crap, what am I doing? I'm throwing like my trout rod at this muskie I saw past me. And it's dumb, but hey, if I can make it work, let's I mean, it's worth a try. I like mean, I saw all the time. I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe it is possible. Maybe we can make this happen somehow. Yeah. And we even um actually tonight, um, so apparently right now the flatheads are crushing artificial baits. Never, never targeted them like that before. I just went down behind our house to go because we have like we have the little smallies. You never know back there. I've caught I've caught two musky back there. It's the river. You never know. There's been plenty of days where I go down there just to drink a beer and chill and like catch absolutely nothing. But I'm outside and I'm just relaxing. To uh, uh, what was it yesterday? No, two days ago, we landed five flatheads, a walleye, and um, the biggest smallmouth I've ever seen in the Schuylkill River. Like, it, I mean, not heat. It was a th- maybe two, maybe two and a half, three pound fish. I didn't weigh it. But that that got me excited because I'm like, all the smallies I catch in that river, they're so small. Like, they're I've never, ever seen them get past, like, that two-pound mark, really. They're really hard to find on the Schuylkill as a whole anymore, anyway. Yeah, everybody complains about it. It's definitely that's a big deal. The flatheads, though, the, um, the one I caught, well, how about 38 pounds? We got a 38 and a 40. On, no, it's not. I think it's 14. On all my salmon rod that has 14 pound floral on it, I've landed <laughs> on it, and I'm just like sitting here, like I shouldn't be throwing this, but I'm going <laughs> anyway. And you know, I've landed, we've landed every one, not, not a single one is broken off, so it's like magical line or something like that. There you go. Well, Kate, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Quad, you got anything for Kate? Anything? I, th- I think we've covered like everything we possibly can. Uh, yeah, we definitely did. We definitely <laughs> did. I, I don't have any other questions, we covered everything. <laughs> Kate, it's been great talking to you. You, you are you're amazing. We, we love, uh, we love all the, all the, uh, all the conversation we've had with you today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Is there any, um, any social media plugs you want to, you want to share how, how people can get in touch with you if they want to? Not really. I just, I have my Instagram, the pepper seed 88. Um, I'm just one of those people. I'm always so busy with my science work and fishing that like social media kind of takes a, uh, the back burner sometimes. Like I have so many photos in my phone right now that just haven't even like touched my Instagram. I have photos from last year that I'm like, oh my God, can I even post these anymore? <laughs> like, is that allowed? Is that a thing? <laughs> no, no, nobody knows. Nobody knows but you. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Well, guys, you can find Kate at, at Pepperseed88 on Instagram. Oh, uh, and Mike. And Mike at Tightlines Philly, of course. And, and Mike, her boyfriend at Tightlines Philly. Uh, they're two incredible fishermen. Go check out their Instagrams. They have like the Rolodex of fishing photos. It's 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 sickening if if uh, if you uh, are a multi-species fisherman because you can go there and salivate for a little bit. But it's been a pleasure chatting with you, Mike. You guys, you guys are great. We'll have you on soon. And thank you very much. We're gonna we're gonna stay on for a little bit, but it was a pleasure chatting with you, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, anytime. Thank you guys for having me. Of course, no of problem. Course. All right, Kate. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, you have a lovely night. We'll talk soon. All right. right, Have a good night. Bye. A lot of content there, man. Uh, All over the place. We we went everywhere with it. Yeah, man. That that's gonna that's gonna be uh that's gonna be one for the books there. I think that's gonna be one for those road trips to the shore, guys. Now we're gonna need about an hour and a half time for this one. (laughs) It might be our longest recording yet, but it was a lot of good content there. Kate is 
absolutely filled with knowledge. So is her boyfriend, Mike. I definitely recommend checking them out at Pepperseed88 on Instagram and at TightLinesPhilly on Instagram. They're, they're two great, great people. They're very kind. They'll help you out. Don't, don't hesitate to reach out to them. And Kate's doing some big things in the fishery world. So uh, she is a wealth of knowledge. And uh, I appreciate having people like that on my side. So most definitely most definitely um like i said not too many people not you don't know too many people that are marine biologists you know growing up that that was one of my as a kid growing up that was kind of one of my dream jobs you know what i mean like living in florida going to sea world all the time you know what i mean like it's one of those jobs as a kid you always wanted to be i guess that's where leads me to where i'm at today as a fisherman being a conservationist and stuff just trying to protect the species you know and and when you get the science side of it with you know with kate and stuff like that you know, we kind of get the gist of it. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's fun and games. Other days, it's just hard work. And I mean, they, they do the best at their job to just try to help our fishery as much as possible. Absolutely. Well, everybody, thanks again for tuning in. You can find us at Tide underscore Chasers on Instagram, Tide Chasers podcast on Facebook. You can find my man Qua over here at That Asian Angler at on Instagram. And then I am at D man, 18 on Instagram. It's been a pleasure to thank you so much for tuning in as usual. Please like subscribe, share the content, leave us some feedback and uh, tight lines, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Yeah. Good night, everyone. Say, keep those lines tight. And we'll see you guys on the next episode. Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.